You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Our continuing series is entitled The Four Rituals of the Ecclesial Age. Our previous class addressed two of our initial eight questions about divinely appointed rituals. We determined that God's rituals are temporary, two-dimensional, earthly shadows, extending from eternal, three-dimensional, heavenly substance. We also determined a common purpose in all divinely appointed rituals to be the blending of earth and heaven. A ritual is a physically performed exercise intended to educationally demonstrate divine principles. We noted this harmonious blending of earth and heaven is a component of all divinely designed rituals. We also noted the dual directional nature of shadows and that shadows have varying lengths throughout the day. The creational features of shadows should be understood as templates for developing a more comprehensive understanding of the heavenly components of these rituals. In other words, witnessing a greater measure of the always hidden glory in our Creator's testimony. So, we need to progress to our next question, which is, how significant are God's rituals and and all those ritual details for performance? Are we free to modify the physical structure of divinely mandated rituals without consequences? Like how the priests of the first kingdom age conveniently substituted blind and lame animals in their sacrifices. We read in Malachi 1 how offended God was. He says, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person? Saith Yahweh of hosts. And now, I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your person, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for nothing. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Many in our enlightened community over the last 150 years have substituted the more convenient leavened bread in memorial service instead of the unleavened bread that Jesus was commanded by God to use at Passover meals. Some brethren promote leaving the memorial bread unbroken. And many try to limit the head coverings of sisters during prayer to, well, simply ecclesial functions. Are these modifications which accommodate personal convenience and preferences actually significant to God and Jesus? Or are they completely inconsequential, as most Christadelphians appear to presume? Are the shadows that God commands significant or actually meaningless, as so many brothers and sisters have insisted since the days of Brother Roberts? Well, from a historical perspective, the ritual instructions of God imposed on the enlightened community have certainly been highly significant with rather serious consequences for those who disrespected God's instructions during both the previous First Kingdom Age and certainly in the beginning of the Ecclesial Age before that time when God's prophesied silence would begin. Our goal is to inherit the restored kingdom of God. Therefore, it should be significant to see how God responded to those in the enlightened community who did disrespect his instructions by creatively modifying those divine instructions during that first kingdom age. We see this in Leviticus 10 in the priestly ordination procedure. We read, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. 
and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This divine execution of those two priest applicants was done on the eighth day, and the last day, of course, of the priest ordination procedure. Our brother Nadab and our brother Abihu creatively decided to add a new component to the ritual procedures that God had communicated to Moses. They introduced some additional pyrotechnics, what the record refers to as strange fire, which had not been commanded. Now, there was no rebuke from God. There, were, there was no finger wagging from Moses or any verbal correction or even a warning. God publicly incinerated these two divinely chosen priest applicants. Moses explained to Aaron why this happened. God demands to be sanctified by those who come nigh to him. This offense against God for modifying this divinely assigned ritual was so significant that Aaron and his other sons were not permitted to even demonstrate any sorrow or outward demonstration of mourning, as that would have been offensive to God. Then more, more than three decades later, Nadab and Abihu's father and uncle were also judged for refusing to follow God's explicit procedural directions at that fountain rock at Kadesh. God commanded Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock, asking for its water, while holding the resurrection rod taken from inside the golden ark of the covenant. God promised the water would then issue from the rock to save the entire congregation who were all required to be watching. Moses and Aaron did not comply with God's instructions. Moses inappropriately struck the rock, and not just once, but twice. Graciously, God still provided the life-saving water from that rock. Despite saving the people, God judged Moses and Aaron for failing to sanctify him before all the enlightened community by simply following his explicit directions. Now, oddly, a number of Christadelphians have creatively suggested that the failure of Moses was actually taking personal credit for this miracle and not the disrespect shown to God for non-compliance with his directions. It is oddly presumed that when Moses asked, must we fetch you water out of this rock? that he was only referring to himself and Aaron, as opposed to the far more logical inclusion of God, along with Moses and Aaron, that the we included God, did not exclude God. It's falsely suggested that God was upset with Moses for not giving God the credit for the miracle. Any, any possibility for respecting this incorrect understanding is eliminated by the perfectly clear reason that God supplied for the failure of Moses and Aaron that had absolutely nothing to do with any inappropriate self-exaltation. We read in Numbers 20 and verse 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. So God specifically identifies the offense as being the unwillingness to believe God. Moses may have doubted the possibility of how merely speaking to a rock would somehow initiate the water flow from out of the rock. I mean, after all, hitting the rock at Kadesh almost 40 years before had worked perfectly and was what God had approved. Perhaps he thought, like so many Christadelphians over the last few generations, that, well, the ritual procedure really doesn't matter. Just the good intentions and the result, but not the procedure. But God declared that this absence of belief resulted in defeating the most significant focus of this event, which was to sanctify God in the eyes of the children of Israel.
Moses and Aaron had not followed God's specific instructions in their performance of this life-saving miracle. These two brothers were forbidden to enter the promised land for their failure to execute the ritual as God had instructed, not recognizing how consequential that failure would be. So yes, abiding by the specific divine instructions for executing God's rituals is highly significant and definitely consequential. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were highly respected and beloved brothers in the truth within that wilderness ecclesia. They openly opposed the very limited priest structure that Moses and Aaron had explained was God's design. They were personally offended at this divine separation of only the sons of Aaron being the exclusively appointed priests, proclaiming that all the congregation were holy before God. And this kind of equality defense is the usual false reasoning for why Christadelphian sisters should supposedly not be limited to that Levite-like support status uh, to the brethren's priestly-like assignment here at the end of the ecclesial age. The issue, the issue is not competence or worthiness, as is defensively promoted today, and was also the inappropriate focus in the, in the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Competency was not the issue when God appointed Aaron and his sons to be the exclusive priests, and it certainly is not the issue in the more limited ecclesial service application of sisters in our current dispensation. Those rebels so long ago could have easily emphasized to the congregation how, well, God's recent covenant promise at Sinai had been that he would make the whole congregation a nation of priests and not just the physically flawless male members of one man's family. The rebels could also remind everyone how Aaron had cooperated with the idolaters by casting the golden calf when Moses didn't return from Mount Sinai for almost six weeks and hadn't even taken food or water with him when he left. But all this seemingly logical reasoning from respected brethren in the truth meant nothing, absolutely nothing, as God miraculously executed not just the rebel leaders, but also their families that were defiantly standing with their husbands and fathers who refused to accept the rightness of God's structural design of the priesthood. And the 250 Levites attempting to usurp the priestly role were burned alive by God, all for refusing to respect the simple operational directions of God. But the Ecclesia didn't even get the message at all. The next day, after the initial shock and fear from those divine executions had drained away, they blamed Moses for personally killing those supposedly wonderful Christadelphians, expressing their supposedly legitimate objections to God's limited priesthood structure, and another 14,700 died extremely quickly from a divinely imposed plague. This is the same reason Moses commanded the father and family of Nadab and Abihu not to mourn when God killed those two priest applicants. We have to choose God over people. We have to choose the sanctification of God through the respect of his specific instructions over the respect of other Christadelphians or anyone else. God only accepts first place in our lives. Second place, he will not accept. So we're considering this issue of whether or not carefully observing divinely mandated rituals is personally consequential or not. Well, let's look at this issue in relation to the death threats and promised ostracism resulting from the incorrect performance of God's rituals. In Exodus 30, we are told, uh, verse 20, 20 to start, when the priests go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands, 
and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So the priests were required to wash both their hands and their feet before serving at the altar of burnt offering or entering the tabernacle, or God would kill them. And these are the same four points of the body, the two hands and the two feet, that were nailed to that pagan cross when Jesus was crucified. Interestingly, the priests were also commanded to wear undergarments, or God would kill them. And this was also in the context of serving at the altar or in the tabernacle. <coughs> we read in Exodus 28, starting at verse 42, And you shall make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. From the loins even to the thighs they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come in unto the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. The high priest had several divine death threats that were intended to motivate his correct performance of God's ritual requirements. In Leviticus 16, the high priest was forbidden to enter the most holy chamber unless it was a day of atonement on threat of death. He was commanded to perform that first day of atonement ritual in the most holy chamber, transfiguring those two handfuls of incense into one aromatic cloud through fire in order to save his own life. Then the high priest could bring the blood of the bullock into the most holy chamber for the atonement of his whole family, and then the altar, uh, and after that, the the goat blood for the atonement of the rest of the nation. God demanded that only the Levites could be allowed to transport the components of the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant, on threat of death. This was why so many of the enlightened community, the Christadelphians of that dispensation, died at Beth Shemesh, because they looked into the ark after the Philistines had returned the ark. And this is why Uzzah was struck dead when he touched the ark that David was foolishly transporting on an oxen-driven cart. Uzzah wasn't a Levite. And God had warned that only the Levites could personally transport the Ark of the Covenant or people would die. David and the enlightened community of that generation were either unaware of that non-compliance death threat or they just didn't care. Much like how the enlightened covenant-bound community today demonstrates a similar attitude to the only four rituals that God and Jesus have mandated for our divinely appointed dispensation. It would have been very inconvenient to comply with that ritual of the red heifer in order to cleanse oneself from the physical defilement imposed by coming in physical contact with the dead. After touching a dead body, one had to live, one had to live outside the community of God for seven days, away from their family, not performing their daily tasks, they had to participate in two sin offerings over those seven days. Yet, touching the dead did not constitute a transgression of God's laws, just a ritual uncleanness. Those ashes of the red heifer had to be spattered onto the death defiled on the third and the seventh days. This was identified as a purification for sin. Despite the significant inconvenience of this ritual, refusing to comply meant a permanent ostracism from their family and the entire enlightened community. We read in Numbers 19, verse 13, Whosoever touches the dead body of a man that's dead and purifies not himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel because the water of separation was not spattered upon him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. So yes, it is very consequential to disrespect the ritual instructions that God has commanded to those who want to inherit immortality. 
for those who wish to inherit the restored kingdom of God and to serve as the immortal priests of that restored kingdom in order to teach and police its laws to the rest of the world. That kingdom law that God has told us he will magnify and make honorable for his righteousness sake. This divine emphasis on the danger of not complying with ritual requirements was certainly continued into the ecclesial age. Jesus Christ also imposed physical judgments, including executions, for disrespecting a ritual he had personally commanded and had provided a detailed pattern for observation. Following Paul's justifications and corrections concerning the ritual of head coverings to the Corinthian Ecclesia, the Apostle relates the details provided him by Jesus himself concerning memorial service, which the brothers and sisters were also dangerously disrespecting. Paul warned them and then emphasized the issue by warning them a second time. So we read in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That's, this is the danger. If we don't discern the Lord's body in the specific directions of this memorial service ritual, then we will be eating and drinking damnation to ourselves. Now that sounds pretty consequential. Then Paul explains how the Corinthian ecclesia had already suffered with rather severe consequences due to their obvious disrespect demonstrated for this divine ritual. The next very next verse reads, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now, that means they died. So Christadelphian brothers and sisters were inflicted with disease and even executed by Jesus Christ for their disrespect to the memorial service ritual. Undoubtedly, some among us may defensively sputter that this wasn't Jesus responsible for this divine suffering or execution, but that would be an impossible suggestion. God exalted Jesus above all authority and power, with the exception of himself, and Jesus commands all the angels and his complete control over the affairs of all mankind, of course, including the ecclesia. So the execution of brothers and sisters in the truth for their disrespect of divinely ordained rituals would not be outside the range of our Messiah's authority or awareness. In the same capacity, he will be the judge, determining who among us will live forever or die forever at the judgment that we await. And his repeated warning has been that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth at his judgment. The invariable compliance structure of the rituals Christ imposed on the Ecclesia was also emphasized immediately before Paul began to address the abuses of the memorial service ritual. When he concluded his explanation of the gender-based head covering and head uncovering ritual, and how that ritual projects the righteousness of God, but only if performed correctly, so Paul concludes his instructions and justifications for the head covering and the uncovering uh, ritual by declaring that everyone should understand, no matter the objections, that there is no other practice or custom in all the ecclesias of God. Sadly, the King James translation inappropriately and unjustifiably reverses that understanding but we can simply examine the Greek text or just read how other Bible translations correctly render this statement. And we're going to look at this when we consider the ritual of head coverings for sisters and uncovered heads for brethren when either praying or that miraculously prophesying capacity that was available during those first two generations of the ecclesial age. Now, the point is that Paul emphasized there was no choice in the matter. 
there was no room for creative non-compliance. He declared that there is no other practice in the ecclesiastes of God. Disrespecting the divinely imposed requirements of God's and Christ's rituals has always been very consequential. But the challenge we face at this time in God's unfolding plan is that we're still within the prophesied term of God's self-imposed silence. Micah and Amos prophesied how God would be silent for an extended period of time, likening that divine silence to a drought of the word of God and the sun going down on the prophets. And Isaiah and Hosea prophesy how God's self-imposed silence will end with the introduction of the millennial kingdom, when God will cry out like a charging soldier and a birthing mother, and when the sun will rise again and the latter rains will accompany the resurrection of the saints. So, at this time, the enlightened community does not suffer or, or benefit from the recalibrating divine judgments of those surgical earthquakes, that deadly fire from heaven, and the prophets who warned the ecclesia but were almost always despised by the enlightened community for their endless prophetic rebukes. We suffer with a parade of false teachers in our community today insisting that the fear of God is nothing more than a pleasant reverence and that salvation is all but guaranteed for us and the need to personally demonstrate God's righteousness is a false understanding that all we need is Christ's righteousness and that's shared with us without condition. But God and Christ are silent as promised without imposing those dramatic frightening executions resulting from the frequent disrespect issuing from, enlightened, from the enlightened community today that Jesus directly identifies as being highly overconfident, neither hot nor cold, blind, wretched, naked, and miserable, and very unpalatable to him. We have to police ourselves on an individual, family, and ecclesial basis if we truly want that divine approval from the Son of God when we face our eternal judgment. Good intentions are not more important than the correct performance of what God and Christ have commanded. God demands that he be sanctified in those who bear his name. The Apostle Paul was inspired to tell us how divine rituals served as temporary earthly shadows of heavenly truths. Therefore, if we modify those ritual requirements, then we're changing the substance, the eternal substance, casting those shadows. So our original question, number three, was to determine well, how significant and consequential it is to correctly observe divine rituals, or if good intentions dismiss any consequences for disrespecting God and Christ's patterns, well, it's always been very consequential to modify divine rituals, both during the First Kingdom Age and the Ecclesial Age. And this is with why the divine warning was, get it right or die. Let's remember, God declares that he does not change. His educational procedures change, but God does not change. If we get the two-dimensional earthly shadows wrong, then we will automatically distort the three-dimensional heavenly substance casting those ritual shadows. So let's, let's move on to our next question, uh, number four, which is why do divinely mandated rituals change? And I think we're going to do number seven along with this one. Uh, why does God change rituals at a particular point in his progressing plan? We certainly know he does it. So the question is why and when? And what's the significance of when? Well, since rituals are two-dimensional projections of the eternal three-dimensional features of our Creator's righteousness, I mean, why, why would they need to change? 
Why aren't shadow rituals just as eternal as the truths they extend from? Well, let's establish a couple of points. First is that darkness, um, that shadow frame resulting from when light hits substance, is time limited. As we reviewed in our previous class, darkness is not forever. A feature of darkness is that darkness is an absence, not a presence, like light. Light is real. It has substance. It has speed. Light can be measured. Light can be created. Darkness is identified with death and ignorance, while light is defined with true knowledge as well as life itself. Life, uh, light <clears throat> is a presence. We can create it, but we can't create darkness. We can only take away light. And what we're left with is what we call darkness, which is simply the absence of light, as darkness isn't real. It's just an absence of what is real. Therefore, shadows are temporary. Light is described as the inheritance of the saints in uh, Colossians 1, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what we inherit. Darkness is the future of those who suffer that second death, that forever death. Darkness is temporary. Therefore, shadows are temporary, as opposed to the light creating those shadows, which is eternal. Our second point is that there are four educational maturing stages in the Creator's plan, just like his four consonant name, uh, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. There are three defining issues for identifying a transition from one divinely imposed age to the next. First, there is a change in divine law. Second, uh, there is a change in divinely appointed um, priesthood. And three, there is an ever-increasing public outpouring of miraculous divine power that validates those uh, always confusing and disruptive changes. Now, these four ages in the plan of God are what we uh, are called, first, the Patriarchal Age, second, the First Kingdom Age, third, the Ecclesial Age, and fourth, that Second Kingdom Age, which we'll call the Millennial Kingdom Age. Now, this progressive educational pattern is exactly how we teach our own maturing children. We teach our infants differently than we teach our toddlers. We teach our teenagers differently than our toddlers. So, why are these transitions in God's plan always so historically counterintuitive to the enlightened community? Well, the answer is the natural self-exalting presumption of full maturity. <laughs> Just it's like the natural rebellious, rebelliousness of youth wanting to be treated as if they are older than their years. Um, for example, that rebellion at the transition into the first kingdom age that saw Korah, Dathan, and Abiram objecting to the humiliating reduction of the priesthood to just the, son, to the sons of just one man, who had been an idolater. It was insisted there was no legitimacy for such an exclusion, and that the whole community was holy. Um, that first great apostasy in the ecclesial age was the insistence for continuing to maintain the previous age's rituals of circumcision, Sabbath observance, and temple worship. And many Christadelphians today exhibit the exact same rebellious pattern by rejecting the many prophecies defining the restoration of quite a few First Kingdom Age rituals and worship patterns um, during the Millennial Kingdoms, such as temple worship, animal sacrifices, circumcision, Sabbath observance, feast weeks, etc. Divine rituals change due to the necessary spiritual maturing of the Bride of Christ to that stage of marriage to the Son of God. Consider the weight of that understanding in the context of ours being the last generation before enlightenment will no longer be optional and the glory of our Creator will begin to cover the earth. We, our generation, we're expected to be the most spiritually mature generation of the enlightened community over the last 6,000 years. 
but as a community, we have failed rather significantly in that expectation. The changing of rituals and the variance in significance for observing rituals should never be understood in the terms of replacement, as if God himself is, is learning as time progresses, and therefore he, he modifies those educational avenues. Or perhaps it's, it's presumed that he, he's discovered some new better way, or, or some technicality has been satisfied. Divine education should be understood as all-inclusive, but that education also offers emphasis, but not elimination. Now, this is a rather common mistake in our community today, presuming that there can be no restoration of Sabbath observance, no restoration of animal sacrifice or circumcision, despite the endless prophecies, that those rituals no longer have any educational significance. But really, would we tell our children to forget the lessons of their youth as they independently venture forward out into the world? Well, let's, let's offer an example in relation to understanding the issue of significance in the context of observing God's rituals. Let's look at, at Sabbath observance in relation to circumcision. These are the two signature rituals of the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. Both were very significant rituals. I mean, God demanded a death sentence if someone disrespected the Sabbath. But if a child needed to be circumcised on a Sabbath, which ritual had to be degraded in order to maintain the integrity of the other? Was Sabbath observance to be elevated above circumcision, forcing the circumcision of a child onto either the seventh or the ninth days, a day of its life? Wouldn't that mean that the covenant for which this ritual served as its signature definition would then be greater than the other covenant. So was the Mosaic covenant greater than the Abrahamic covenant? After all, God did not offer any simple, direct instructions as to which covenant-defining ritual had to be subject to the other. But Jesus tells us that the Jewish people actually chose the correct order of significance. When Jesus defended the spiritual legitimacy of his having healed on a Sabbath day, he says this in John 7, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, and not because it is a Moses, but of the fathers, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? So Jesus points out that the enlightened company, uh, community uh, chose to circumcise even on a Sabbath day. And therefore, why did they think they had the right to object when he made a man whole on a Sabbath day? The point is that the Jewish people correctly chose to observe the ritual of circumcision at the expense of the ritual of Sabbath observance. Now these two signature rituals of these two covenants are also prophetic in nature and actually sustain that significance balance. The, that seventh-day Sabbath observance projects the seventh divine day of rest for all of creation, that millennial kingdom, that seventh divine day, that Sabbath kingdom of rest from the physical effects of sin. But what's greater than a mere rest from the physical effects of sin? Well, that would be the complete elimination of sin, with all of its horrible effects, which God has scheduled for the eighth day, after the end of the Sabbath kingdom, when death will be eliminated and all flesh will be cut away in circumcision-like fashion on that eighth divine day, that eighth millennium. Circumcision was greater than Sabbath observance, which means that the Abrahamic covenant of faith is greater than the Mosaic Covenant of Works, and the elimination of all that is flesh in the eighth millennium is greater than the mere rest from sin in the seventh millennium, there's a significance balance that needs to be understood 
in relation to these shadow rituals that God and Christ require of the enlightened community. So rituals certainly do change. God is educating the bride of his son in different stages. Rituals change for educational purposes, like, like progressing from elementary math to algebra to geometry to trigonometry to calculus and physics. We certainly don't teach our children calculus before elementary math. That would be silly. God teaches us similarly in progressive stages. Shadows, and therefore shadow rituals, are temporary. And there certainly is a variable significance in divine rituals. But another issue to remember is the issue of inclusion as opposed to exclusion. Both covenants are necessary, both the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenants. We have to have both faith and works Faith alone will not save us. Paul explains that that's a dead faith, a lazy faith, a worthless faith, a faith without works. So, we can next ask why there are only four rituals to be observed during the ecclesial age. And let's add to that the sixth question. Why do we see that dual emphasis in each of those four rituals? Well, the first kingdom age had a very long list of required rituals. Uh, many carried a death sentence or an ostracism mandate if they were not faithfully observed. But there are only four rituals required for the ecclesial age, baptism, memorial service, that head covering or head uncovering during prayer and prophesying, um, depending on gender, and the silence ritual also depending on gender. But it should not be a surprise that there should be four educational rituals assigned for the last development stage of the saints before enlightenment is no longer optional. Four is the number endlessly identified throughout scripture with the principle of God manifestation, which is the manner in which God reveals or manifests himself. This divine emphasis on the number four can be witnessed in both the foundational frame of his name, those four letters in his memorial name, YHWH, as well as those four salvation stages, those divinely appointed ages in his plan for creation. So uh, first, um, we have those uh, four consonants, the four letters in the memorial name of God, meaning he who shall be. Since Yahweh has been forever, having no origin, the future nature of his name promises a revealing an unveiling of what has been hidden, a manifesting of God. And similarly, there are four salvation events in the Creator's plan. These are, of course, first, the immortalization of Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years ago. Secondly, the immortalization of the saints at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Third, the immortalization of the second set of saints following the end of the Millennial Kingdom. And fourth, the elimination of death in all of creation following that third immortalization event, thereby saving all of creation, not just mankind. There will have been four divine sanctuaries designed by God, through which God has manifested himself and will, yet in the fourth. First, of course, was the tabernacle built by Moses, Sinai. Second was the temple at Jerusalem, built by the son of David. Third was the post-captivity temple that Herod expanded so significantly, and of course this was the temple during the ministry of Jesus. The fourth divine sanctuary will be the temple that Jesus will construct at Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. And additionally, that fourth divine sanctuary, the temple that Jesus will build, will have four gates, four entrances. Now interestingly, only three will be used, but God designed this future temple to have four entrances into this physical representation of divine principles and truths. We also have that holy golden ark of the covenant. It had four items deposited into it, incorruptible items. First was the golden bowl of manna that didn't corrupt, and second and third were that uh, second set of covenant stones with the Ten Commandments inscribed by the finger of God. And that fourth article was Aaron's rod of resurrection, 
with its four maturity stages of the beginning buds, the fully mature buds, the flowers, and the ripe fruit. All four components were incorruptible. The matter, the two stones, and the rod. Fifth, there were four married couples on Noah's Ark of Salvation, which also constituted four men and four women, similar to the two sets of saints that will be immortalized at the two separate points in the plan of God. Sixth example, a similar pattern, the heaven and earth covenant between God and Abram repeatedly demonstrates this doubled four pattern. Uh, God instructed Abram to make two parallel rows of four sacrificial components with each row incorporating three severed earthly animal components and one whole fowl of heaven. Additionally, each of those sacrificial animals had a foundational structure of two sets of four, or four sets of two, if you wish. The three earthly beasts had four uh, cloven hoofs, making a foundation of four sets of two, four feet with cloven hooves. Each of the two fowl of heaven, that pigeon and the turtle dove, had four talons upon which they, the, each of them stood. This unique ritual provides a, a distinct prophetic application concerning the four salvation events in the Creator's plan, as there were three earthly beasts, and each had to be specifically three years old. There was one male and two females that were cleaved into two separate components. This gender and this age detail projects how the three salvation events of the faithful will be one, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his two brides, the saints at the beginning of the millennial kingdom and the saints just after the end of, the, of that kingdom. And over the course of three millenniums from start to finish, those fowl of heaven project that fourth salvation stage when all of creation will be saved with the elimination of death in all of creation. That, that common four plus four pattern certainly defines the number four with the principle of God manifestation. God manifesting or revealing himself with that always intentional complexity. Seventh, we have this uh, same pattern is demonstrated in the two sets of covenant stones. We're told that the Ten Commandments were inscribed on both sides of each of the four stones, making eight surfaces in total, but each set of stones had four surfaces upon which that finger of God inscribed the words of the covenant, those Ten Commandments. Similar to how those beasts in the heaven and earth covenant were cleaved in two, the first set of covenant stones were broken, and the second set was preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. Once again, a, a four plus four pattern that manifests or reveals God. Uh, an eighth example. This same pattern is evident in the divinely designed wilderness encampment with the outer four square tribal political structure and the inner four square spiritual structure of the Levites and the priests. Uh, ninth, the, the bronze altar of burnt offering was four square with four horns, and exactly four categories of blood or life offerings, the, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. The other two offering categories were grain and wine, and there were four divisions of those. Uh, one was unprocessed grain, uh, whole kernels. Secondly was processed grain, fine flour. Third was unleavened bread, always without exception. And fourth, the wine, the drink offering. Uh, this altar is identified repeatedly by the Apostle Paul as representing Jesus Christ, who manifested God perfectly. Tenth example, the golden altar of incense was also four square, upon which the four-component incense was burned twice each day, that Annika, Galbanum, Stacti, and Frankincense. The incense is defined in Psalms and Revelation as representing the prayers of the faithful to God. Eleventh, uh, the, the cherubim. The cherubim, or shadow representations of the immortalized Christ and the saints, where we see that number four silently shouted. I mean, there are four cherubim with four faces. They each have four wings. They are witnessed within a framework of four components that... that 
that whirlwind, the enfolding fire, the cloud, and a brightness. The cherubim hover over four wheels that are within four wheels. Their foundation is also defined by four, as they each have two feet that are cloven hoofs, making a foundational structure of four. These examples only constitute a small sampling these, uh, of the full range of evidence that the number four scripturally identifies as the principle of God manifestation, which radiates out from those four letters in the memorial name of God, YHWH. Therefore, the fact that there are exactly four rituals commanded by God and Jesus Christ to be carefully observed during the ecclesial age fits perfectly into this harmonious pattern. Like many of those examples we just reviewed, there's also a distinct dual nature to each of these four ecclesial age rituals. Now, this is really rather easy to see, but we're going to have to leave those observations for our next class. We will also address the question as to what happens to those four ecclesial age rituals in the approaching restored kingdom age, and why. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.